Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Here we go, 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 go on an adventure. The conversation is up and away. This is episode number 120. Welcome you, you fantastic you. Nobody is youier than you. And I like that. Do you ever wonder what a Smart and Simple Matters lead-in would sound like that was so streamlined it didn't reference how to support the show at joelsoslowski.com slash support, didn't talk about what was happening with me lately, and just gave you the minimum context you needed to get deep into the episode? Yeah, uh, me neither. Actually, actually, hey, what do you say? Let's try it, just to see what it's like. The chat you're about to hear was with Annie Rasser Rowland and involved a lot of playfulness. We discussed much like what a well-cultivated mental landscape can look like, what noise, light, and other pervasive pollution might be doing to you, how a frugal lifestyle can be the highest form of luxury, how to play some games with your senses so they delight in the everyday experiences. How Annie easily supports herself on one-fourth the average Australian income. And why Annie is forced to be a good human. Oh, the horror, right? Oh, we'll also talk about the joys of going barefoot and how to own your pleasure-seeking urges without paying for it. And, you know, and more stuff. Just pretty standard things, right? Occasionally, Annie cuts in and out for a couple of seconds, and there's some minor rhythmic toward the end of the episode. It's no biggie. It's just part of the adventure of chatting with Annie and podcasting. Get ready, because here we go. Annie Rasser Rowland sure knows how to have a good time. She's a horticultural educator, a romantic, a long-distance hiker, or occasional excellent wanderer, and a writer about all kinds of things like consumption, human relationships to landscape, and making meaning and ecstasy in our modern world. She has two co-authored books, The Weed Forager's Handbook and The Art of Frugal Hedonism, a guide to spending less while enjoying everything more, and has managed to captivate one Joel Zeslowski's imagination. Hey, Annie. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joel. Well, what do you say? Should we start where I typically start a conversation? A little something I call the seeds of awesomeness? Yeah, I really want to help people understand how you came to be the person that you are today, at least partially, as much as we can in a short period of time. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe an experience that you had growing up that had a really big impact on the current version of you? I don't think I could pick out a single experience, but um, I probably had a pretty nice Venn diagram of two parents and my parents split up when I was fairly young and one who was very organized um, and, you know, we never wasted any food in my house as a kid. And because, 
she was a single mom then I had to learn to cook really young and when I was with her I was sort of an only child and so I had to learn how to entertain myself and create those those internal worlds where you use nothing but your imagination to to make fun and to make universes and your own curiosity to fill your time and then when I was spending time with my dad I was with five other kids um, from his new partner and so so it was a completely different environment where it was very much about lots of adventures and chaos and so I sort of had both those things feeding in to give me a sense of self-reliance and um, the preciousness of a well-cultivated mental landscape and community and, you know, getting along with other people and how enriching that is. Hmm. Uh, well-cultivated mental landscape. I don't think I've ever heard somebody use that language. The 12-year-old or 17-year-old version of you, what did that look like? What did that feel like to you to have this well-crafted? Fairly psychotic, I would say. Okay. I was a very intense youth, yet very determined to have adventures, and that probably is what laid a lot of ground for learning to be very contentedly frugal because it seemed fairly obvious to me that I could either postpone having adventures until I had lots of money or I could just get a lot better at having really cheap adventures. And it seemed a lot smarter to do the second one. Um, so I really – it. I was sort of, you know, quite a, a punky teenager in lots of ways and I – but I didn't want to be a dropkick at the same time. It was like I want to live by my own rules, but I don't want to just be someone that goes to parties and dresses in outrageous clothing. I want to be someone that goes to parties, dresses in outrageous clothing, and yet when we're all coming home from the party at the end of the night isn't buying a $12 kebab but is like got, you know, a cheese sandwich they've had stuffed into their backpack the whole night long <laughs> to keep me going because I want that money to save up to be able to get a ticket to Guatemala to climb volcanoes for six months and that greater use of money rather than just frittering it away on immediate gratification was always, always seemed worthwhile to me through those formative years because I was so clear that I wanted to have fantastic experiences in my life and I think it really shaped that that fundamental habit of saying I don't I don't need those cheap and easy and convenient pleasures like drunkenly buying that takeaway kebab I need money for for much more fantastical things than that that habits really continued for me I mean I still often you know, I'm like anyone, I'm susceptible to advertising, I'm susceptible to being influenced by consumer culture and sometimes I'll find myself looking at something very expensive that someone has and or, you know, people sitting in a fancy restaurant as I'm riding past it of an evening and think, oh, that looks nice, but it takes me about a tenth of a second to swivel and say, ah, oh, but by not constantly doing that, I get this and this and that. And I get all these freedoms about how much I work and about that constant level indulgence and convenience. And it is just such a worthwhile equation that I don't really have to fight very hard to maintain it because it's its own reward. Hmm. 
What was some of the this and that that you had first? You know, I'm hearing a couple of different things, which probably work together as opposed to in opposition to each other. You going to the party with friends and also thinking about going to Guatemala for six months and hiking volcanoes. What was it first? Did you go with other people, with other friends, maybe in a certain community where you had this big initial adventure? Or did you set off on your own? Because you seem like somebody, and we'll probably come back to this in our conversation, who's very community-oriented and has a sense of belonging in a lot of different circles that you run in. But where did you get started with these worldwide adventures? Uh, I was pretty much a solitary traveler, I think. Yeah, it was... I think it's... It's often excellent thinking time traveling, and um, when you've been exposed to all new stimuli and new environments, it's it's a really good space for digesting those things and you and learning more about yourself and about how you want to be in the world and what parts of it you want to keep as part of your repertoire of of ways to be and move and think and exist and you I think you digest that information while you're traveling a lot more profoundly when you're by yourself whereas it can just feel more like a a rollicking good time when you're in company and so I always I've always liked to go hiking alone for quite long times and I've really often liked to travel alone um and I think that is part of that self self sufficiency of having been half an only child is that you're very comfortable in your own company in that way. Was it on one of these long hikes where you developed more of an environmental consciousness? I've heard you mention in other places that there was a point where this became acute as opposed to just something in the background. When was that? What was the trigger or triggers to get more environmentally minded and actively yeah. engaged in the world of environmentalism? It really, it really was uh, through spending quite a lot of time hiking that probably tipped me into that space and just feeling so – and I was an artist at that point and making art for my, in most of my free time and feeling this combination of the sense that it did not matter what I made when I were going to the natural world, the combination of – beauty and majesty and surreality and you know soul elevating just gobsmacking beauty is always going to be better than anything I could make and so it seems really worthwhile putting my energy into not having as detrimental an impact on all of that beauty as I could um I think also I've I've had some ongoing chronic health problems and I think as much as that's always a problem, it really triggers your thinking about the way your whole system functions and how it functions in relation to your environment, which then makes you think a lot about the health of your environment. Um, so there's always a a good side to any any downside and – I do think it's been one of the really interesting positives to come out of having some health issues is you say, okay, is this stuff that's been triggered by pollution and what is there that I can learn about what's happening ecologically that pollutant levels are this high that it could be causing these problems to manifest? And it really just 
lets you think about the health of the entire system in which you're operating your place within it and food chains as well it makes you think about where the food that you're eating comes from when you when you have any health issues and you start to feel like a part of the link of that health or the dishealth of that system and that's become incredibly important to me was that a real example that you gave a uh, chronic health issue triggered by pollution air pollution yeah. or water pollution yeah yeah, yeah, I've got some really bad allergy issues that have just, uh, you know, come about in the last decade, so that seem to be really exacerbated by pollutants. And I live near quite a noisy road, and, you know, there's so much stuff about how noise pollution can trigger people's physiological systems to be more stirred up and, and less able to repair themselves. Um, and it makes you think, all right, well, how do I feel about the fact that we're creating all this noise pollution via this amount of casual driving and do I want to contribute to that? And the answer is generally no. <laughs> hmm. what, are yeah. the other, what are the other types of pollution that you see that others might not? I, I think other people, they get it when you, when you say noise pollution. They understand when they're in a really noisy place and how that impacts them potentially makes them want to flee and go somewhere else. Yeah. But when it comes to light pollution or other things that we don't yeah. necessarily think of as pollution, where does your mind go when you use that word? And what are some of the things that that you are either sensitive to or actively working on to try to be less of an issue for other people? I would say all of those that you just riffed off is light, noise, um, actual air particulate pollution, uh, food chain quality in terms of whether you've got really high levels of nitrates coming in your food or um, straight up chemical fertilizer residues and pesticide residues in your food. I try not to get too precious about that kind of thing because I think that's a dishealth in itself. I am more interested in thinking about what the shape of the world is that is creating that level of sort of physiological overstimulus and contamination um because i think even i mean you say lots of people might not be aware of it but i think we're often subconsciously or viscerally aware of it in that whether we're consciously aware of it, our bodies are responding to that stuff quite often mm -hmm. and the huge onslaught of people saying that they feel like they're having anxiety disorders and sleep problems and so on it's, I mean, there's so much scope there for that stuff to be related to stuff like light pollution or information over stimulation, which is a form of pollution unto itself. I do think that's one aspect of consumption that is just starting to get questioned more is how much information we can actually take in well. And that's another thing that I have learned from hiking and especially solitary hiking is I listen to a lot of podcasts, dare I say, and get a lot out of heaps of them. Um, and I read a lot because I'm voraciously curious. But I'm well aware from the experience of hiking that just like really simple food tastes better and seems to contain so many more layers of pleasure and satisfaction to it when you're in that context where your food is more restricted because all you have in your backpack is that bag of oats and that bag of lentils and rice and spices 
and it, it's amazing and multidimensional because you're heating it so much when you eat it and your body's enlivened and you're really appreciating it as you're eating it. That The book that I read when I'm hiking often is digested on so many layers for me because I'm not in that state of information overload that I often am when I'm at home where I'm listening to all this fascinating stuff and reading all this fascinating stuff and having fascinating conversations with people. And I think there's there's a lot of lessons to be taken from that. I'm pretty sure that almost anyone that's ever spent extended time camping has had that experience where you find the the increasing value of small things to be something that you turn over in your mind or in your mouth for pleasure and consideration to a much greater and more lingering depth. And often if I'm going for a really long hike, I'll find I'm almost having conversations with characters in the book that I'm reading in the evening where I'm thinking about how they would respond to a certain situation. I'm learning things from them because I've got so much time to digest all the layers of information in that book that we don't give ourselves by just polluting ourselves with such a glut of information on a daily basis when we're in an urban environment. You use a lot of food-related words. I've heard digest maybe four or five times in the last few minutes. Maybe it's just me who's picking up on it. And I believe one of the reasons is you're so in tune with food. And I also believe you may be selling yourself a little bit short, Annie, when you go hiking and you just have these simple things in your backpack. That's not all you have available to you. I mean, you co-authored a book called The Weed Forager's Handbook, a guide to edible and medicinal weeds in Australia. So, And I do like to skip through the hills, picking little bits of greenery from here and there to accessorize the things in my backpack. Is that really Um, it, though? You're just accessorizing? Is there any major form of sustenance that you can take from the landscape because you've been a forager for a long time? And maybe you go hiking in a specific area because you know it's super rich at this time of year in whatever this plant is. Do you go on any kind of journeys or adventures with the purpose of trying to take less with you and sustaining yourself more off of just what's freely available in the wild where you are? Look, I will usually try and keep it just a bit on the slim side because I want to be pushed into that space where I have to look around and get stuff from the landscape. Um, But as an Australian, if you live in the southern half of the country and you don't have thousands of years of indigenous knowledge behind you, lots of the stuff that you can forage here that is of any bulk nutrient value is it takes lots of specialized and skilled processing or leaching or pounding, so it's actually quite hard. It's more I I really appreciate weeds and wild foods which is generally the most accessible stuff that in this part of the country that you're going to get because when you're hiking it's the complete food group that you're missing in a hiking diet because you've got all these staples and dried foods and stuff and then suddenly you have all these free super nutritious wild greens that give you that fresh component with heaps of vitamins and nutrients in there so they really help to enliven food like that but that said, like I did a um, last year, I did a month long hike through Central Australia in the uh, sort of really canyony desert areas near Uluru, which you might know as Ayers Rock. Um, and because it's hard to carry a month's worth of food and you have to pack really light, leanly, then I was pushed into 
using the bit of research I'd done before I'd left to climb up trees and knock down these galls that have got this larvae living in the middle of them that are quite protein and fat rich and chipping those open with my knife in a rock and finding that I was completely prepared to eat a huge larvae in the middle of a gall growing on a tree and eat several of them because I was so hungry for that extra food source. So I do like to keep myself on the hungry side when I'm hiking so that you're pushed into that space or so that you have a genuine motivation to go, ah, that's, that's that berry that I read about before I left and I've, ri- I've brought a little photograph of it with me and, yeah, that is definitely the one because I've looked at the leaf shape and, all right, it might – if I was in the city, that might taste a bit watery and bland and not that sweet compared to a blueberry from a supermarket or something. But when I'm here in the desert and I'm hungry and I've been walking and sweating in the heat all day, that tastes amazing to me get a, to get a handful of those. Yeah. Um, so, it's yeah, I do like to push it a little bit. And I think that stuff does carry through into some of the skills that are really useful for people in that in a lower consumption lifestyle is, I mean, part of what we wanted to do when we were writing this book was to say, look, a, a frugal lifestyle can be very rich and very luscious and succulent in so many ways. Um, and it's really a bit of a myth that it's a giant act of martyrdom because so much of what you get to do when you're habitually frugal is actually what people spending lots of money are busy making the money to try and be able to do like be lazier and lie around in sunny places more and go for more holidays um and spend lots of time like cooking leisurely meals with friends and family and all of that kind of stuff. Like frugality really gets you a lot of the stuff that wealth is supposed to get you, which is hilarious. But there is also the aspect within frugality of you play this little ongoing game with yourself where you keep yourself intermittently a bit hungry, like a bit deprived of certain things so that you appreciate out of what you do get. And it doesn't have to be as extreme as wanting a little handful of berries in the desert. But it might be that you go, well, I made a, a huge apple pie last night and I had like a triple helping of that for dessert because I'd been walking all day and doing heaps of exercise in the garden. I felt like having like a ridiculously large amount of apple pie. But today I'm just going to eat really lightly and eat vegetable soup so that tomorrow when I'm eating that extra piece of apple pie, I really enjoy it again. So it's about playing that little little trick with your sensory intake so that you never get into that horrible Western space of being – you start to almost feel a bit queasy with it and you need to up the level of stimuli that you're getting all the time to feel like you're spoiling yourself. And there is stuff that – there's a chapter in the book related to Christmas – where we talk about the fact that in medieval times that the foods that we traditionally eat at Christmas, like, you know, a a pudding made out of dried fruit and spices and so on and, you know, a big roast animal, those were incredibly luxurious foods 
and that you would save them to that point in winter where you're getting so bloody depressed because you'd been cold for months and were using up the rest of your root vegetable store that you're like, I want me a pudding full of dried, <laughs> dried fruits and nuts and, and spices and I want something big and greasy and roasted and dead. And um, apologies to any sensitive vegetarian listeners out there. Now we've gotten so calibrated to a place where treating yourself is chocolate or ice cream that we don't we don't consider fruit and nuts and spices to be a treat anymore. We consider them to be a health food snack that you eat when you're being good. Mm-hmm. And so part of being successfully frugal and really enjoying things all the time is yeah it's about living it up in certain cheapskate ways but it's also about playing that little game with your senses where you do restrict things occasionally so you're like lean 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 fat 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 lean 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 fat 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 so that you never tip into that that horrible point where you're so spoiled that you can't enjoy anything anymore just to make it clear, we've since shifted from the book that I talked about maybe 10 minutes ago, The Weed Forager's Handbook, to The Art of Frugal Hedonism. You mentioned the book. I just want people to be aware that I think we're getting into that territory right now. And for a lot of people who listen to the show or who have listened to the show, they get it. The frugality, it's not necessarily this painful, excruciating restraint and this deep level of deprivation that they just have to power through for the rest of their lives. But even seemingly frugal people, people who almost had that as their default from growing up, whether they had mom who was super into personal finance and handed down all this thing, or maybe it was self-imposed, maybe they grew up in a family that just did not have a lot of traditional means to support them. Why, out of all these people, we can appreciate, if we slowed down enough, some of these things that you're talking about, some of these common things, but alternative sources of pleasure and of hedonism, like I believe you mentioned before, just enjoying some food, sitting in the sun with your back against a wall, with nothing to do, no sense of necessarily what the time it is or what's next. I mean, to me, that sounds luxurious. But wouldn't people still have to skip the busyness trap that a lot of folks fall into in order to have that level of appreciation? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm with any lifestyle change, and I mean, as you said Lots of people listening to the show are already well on this track and maybe over the hump. But for people that aren't feeling like it's something that they struggle with making that that segue, we 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 did put a chapter in the book. And when I'm saying we, I'm talking about my co-author Adam Grubb um, about changing habits because I think there's there's a teething period where if you've been really busy and you're used to working a lot, then if you start consuming less, then all you get is that impoverished period where you're still just as busy and sort of stressed and yet you're not buying yourself all those treats you've been using to make that okay. But then it starts to become its own reward because obviously as you consume less, you can make that decision to work less, which is not something that everyone wants to do because some people love their work. I love most of the work that I do. I choose to work kind of one 
wage paid day a week and that supplies me with basically everything I need to live on and then everything I else I do is my passion projects the stuff that fascinates me and that I really care about or that I don't care how much money I make from I want to contribute to the world or I want to learn something um and that definitely does give you the time and the space to disappear into sitting with your back against a sunny wall and not knowing what the clock is saying. But it's also a mental habit is recognizing ways to make time slow down and get bigger and stop. And that is a lot of what we address in the book is that often what we are seeking when we consume things and when we spend money is that we've been so well advertised to that spending money is a way to step into the frivolity zone or the zone of play so that you go you go to a cafe and you buy cake and coffee and that's I'm now having a nice time and this is a rest from all of the the hard and demanding things that life throws at us as humans or I'm going to the movies and I'm now having a nice time and it's sort of escapist and but we've been so well taught that we have to consume things to enter that space. Whereas part of what we really try and address in the book is skills to that space without consuming things. And lots of it is just about creating new habits around how you get into that space. So you might develop that habit of going, I know that the sun always hits that brick wall on the street opposite my house at about 4 p.m. on sunny afternoons and I'm going to go take a break and sit there with this banana smoothie I've just made and sit there for 15 minutes and gaze up at the clouds and drink that banana smoothie, um, holding hands with my boyfriend if I can in my case, Hmm. Um, not saying anything and just watch the clouds for that 15 minutes And it really is a way in which you can enter that completely timeless and this is treat time space and you haven't had to consume anything to do it. You haven't participated in a sanctioned, you are now having a nice time advertised concept of how to I know bestow upon you the pleasure of having a good time. Compliments of your paycheck and your wallet. Thank you, everyone. Yes. Whereas I really think we're just all so much more likely to get around to having a very nice time if we know how to bestow it upon ourselves. And it's not even that hard. We've really got all the tools there. It's just about the practice of doing it. You mentioned, um, I think maybe before we, we started officially speaking in this conversation, you mentioned Brooke from the Slow Home podcast. And she had described to me a wonderful evening when I did an interview with her where her family went out and uh, splashed in the mud puddles in the street and that it just seemed like it was the longest, like it was more of a holiday when they'd taken a week holiday to some holiday cottage that they'd rented because they just went out in a in a downpour or a rainstorm and, and splashed around in the mud puddles and they came back in and it, was, it had just been so magical and time had sort of stopped for that experience. But it's about recognizing those moments 
for play and for making time stop in a non-consumer way. And that's that's just kind of reclaiming the responsibility our responsibility as humans to be engaged and aware. And that is one of the beautiful challenges that frugality throws at you. It says don't be passive when it comes to pleasure. Be active and be a pleasure-seeking creature, which is partly why we called the book The Art of Frugal Hedonism because it's about recognizing that you don't want to be frugal and be a martyr about it or you don't want to consume less to try and help be a better environmental citizen and be a mar- do it for a martyrish sake because that's not going to work for anyone. We are pleasure-seeking creatures and to take responsibility, to, to throw your shoulders back and take on that challenge of saying, I will acknowledge myself as a pleasure-seeking animal and I will take responsibility for my own pleasure rather than trying to outsource it and buy it. And I will look around and I'll see, does that look like fun? Is that a way I could have fun? Is that a way I could make time stop or that I could feel exhilarated just by participating more more deeply in the world or by having that nerve to say to my family, let's all go out in the, the rainstorm and get drenched and splash in the mud puddles for an hour. Yeah, that's something that we could do at any point in the history of humanity. Uh, and this kind of speaks to one of the things that you have in your book is a chapter on Epicurus in Roman times yeah. and really how much has not changed in 2,000 years when it comes to what's actually fun, what fulfills us, what do we enjoy as humans. What have you found? I know you've done a ton of travel, so you can talk about the consistency across cultures when it comes to your version of frugal hedonism or across eras that makes us fulfilled and valuable. You use the word reclaim. I like the word revive, which is these are things that are lying dormant, and all we need to do is have the awareness of what it takes, how simple it is to make us feel good, to make us feel connected, uh, to make us feel like we're of service to other people. Little, tiny, small little acts. How do you how do you know this so well, like across cultures and across eras? Did you and your co-author, did you do some kind of massive research? Uh, or is this all firsthand experience that you have where you can give a hundred uh, different examples of... That would be incredibly arrogant, I think. Um, I mean, first of all, to, to just check that we weren't fibbing about ourselves, we did actually keep budgets for a year for the sake of writing the book. And we found out that, that we personally live on about a quarter of the average Australian income, and that's including uh, every man, woman, child. So it's actually because the children are throwing it off, it would be a bit less than a quarter. Um and we do that without ever feeling deprived. But we also spoke to a lot of friends that are really good at being frugal, including ones with kids, um, because since neither of us have kids, it was quite important to make sure that this wasn't just something magical that you could pull off if you didn't have kids, but that it was impossible if you were a parent. And we interviewed people who – had come from different generations, including people who'd lived through the Depression in Australia um, in the 30s, which is a pretty dire time, Um, and people who came from different cultural backgrounds about 
what people did to have fun in their home culture, um, including cultures who have a lot lower disposable incomes and kind of have to make their own fun and their own pleasure. And a lot of commonalities came out, really just good and luxuriant time with other people seems to be a fundamental. And I think it is too easy to see in a, in a busy modern Western mindset to see human time as something that's, and I'm talking about, you know, slow and thoughtful and really engaged human time as something that's a bit disposable and is almost a luxury. Whereas it, it seems like, and Epicurus said this, that it's one of the most fundamental things that makes us happy. Epicurus is an interesting one because his reputation has very much come to be associated with indulgent feasting and um, fine wines and cheeses and, you know, you'll get delicatessens that are called the Epicurean and so on because people think about it as all to do with luxury foods, whereas he actually said that the things that make people happy are time for contemplation and time with good friends. And those things are two things that we tend to deprive ourselves of in any large volume in modern living, and yet they're considered to be the very the very best parts of human life by so many philosophers. Um Advertisers, it's interesting there's a point in the book where we talk about advertising, will often use some of those things within their ad campaigns to make us associate their product with what we are actually missing in our life. Like they'll show an advertisement with people sitting around drinking a soda or something and they were all, they're looking really laid back and excited with talking with a bunch of friends and we look at it and we go, I want that, but we're not recognizing that what we actually want is the time with the friends and the, the soda isn't what we want at all. It's very canny the way they weave that stuff in there. And it's really worth recognizing that that machine of conviction has huge amounts of money at its disposal. There's approximately $1,000 US per year per person spent trying to persuade each of us that various products are what we need to be happy, which is a lot of money. And it's not really that surprising that we get confused about what we do need to be happy. Um, so, yeah, time with friends in the sense of belonging to a community is definitely stuff that comes up again and again and time for personal reflection Giving. Where do you get your sense of community? If if I might just jump in and ask you, what are where are the places online or offline that you go where you clearly know you are among your people and you feel a sense of belonging? I actually really love the good old fashioned knowing your neighbors stuff. I, you know, I don't go spend social time with most of my neighbors, but there's something gorgeous about that that fabric of a neighborhood where when I've got too much stuff in the garden, I just walk up the street and leave bags of it hanging on people's doorknobs with a little note and they know where it comes from. And when I see them on the street, they, they say hi and thanks for the lettuce. And I know that I could always go knock on, you know, like when my dog's gotten lost, I know that I can go knock on any 
door on my street and say, hey, I don't have a car. Can someone take me for a drive around the neighborhood to look for my dog, for example? Because I have enough of a relationship. And if someone walks past my front fence and I'm guarding, then I'll stop and I'll talk to them. And I love that level of community a lot. Um, I think we can get too too romantic about human relationships being uh, purely recreational and not recognize that leaning on each other makes those relationships more meaningful, not less. It doesn't cheapen them. It strengthens them. And that for most of human history, we have spent time needing all the people around us and that it's only these exorbitant incomes we have that enables people to get away with just buying everything they need for themselves. Whereas before you would have always had to borrow tools from a neighbor or borrow vehicles or trade food with them. And we have a chapter on the book in the book called do business with friends, which is something that's so commonly advised against, but it keeps you connected to people in a meaningful way and it helps to prevent some of that social isolation where people have got no reason to speak to people around them unless there's a social event being conducted. And that's a lot less likely to happen than needing to borrow someone's shovel. And yet the thing is, if you know that neighbor who you borrow the shovel from, then you quite often end up leaning on their front porch for half an hour while you're borrowing the shovel, finding out everything about their kids or getting into an amazing political conversation with them or learning something about their work and it becomes a more meaningful relationship and then you drop back the shovel and the same thing happens again and maybe you loan them your blender or whatever it is at the same time. Um, And I think that level of community that comes from need is underrated and it's almost seen as a weakness to not buy everything you need for yourself whereas I actually consider it to be a strength because you have to be accountable and a good member of your community to get that stuff to get people to trust you and respect you and feel like you've done things for them enough to be able to rely on each other Uh, The fact that I don't go spend money to buy absolutely everything I need means that I have to be a good person, (laughs) which is terrifying. What? You have to be a good human? Yeah, you have to be a good human. Oh, man, that sounds hard. Hiring, but it means that and being a good human is a gorgeous challenge because it not only means being decent, but it means like trying to be entertaining and friendly and interesting. And I like that challenge that I have to be interesting and that if I'm listening to someone talk about their job, that it's like I want to ask them a really interesting question about that so they feel good about their interaction with me so that when I need them, which may sound callous, but because I'm a member of a community, I need other people and I need them to enjoy their interactions with me so that they want to help me out when I need stuff. And that includes just when I need the pleasure of their company. And, I, yeah, so I like to get a sense of community not just from close friends but from that that broader sense of if I go into a shop, I will often banter and play with whoever I'm buying something from a bit 
rather than just handing over the money because that is part of being the broader community to me and looking at them and saying, you're a human. There's an opportunity for a slightly more interesting interaction here than just giving you the money and you giving me the postage stamps or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You mentioned asking interesting questions of people, not just being interesting, but being able to ask questions, sincere questions that show a level of curiosity that I care what you're doing, who you are, uh, where you're going. Are there any big questions that you find yourself either asking yourself or others a lot lately? Hmm. I feel like I'm always asking big questions, possibly almost to a fault. I can get obsessed with the big questions. I, I suppose I'm pretty fixated lately on whether other people share the sense I have that there's some stuff we are doing as a modern first world culture that that needs redressing and what those things are because I have the sense that there's certain aspects of our culture that have reached a point of dishealth that that really need a bit of a tipping point to occur um and at the moment a lot of that is around social media and um ever prevalent telephone technology and sort of being the the whole being wired in thing and i think there's a lot of really interesting things shifts that i see happening in how people use their brains and how we perceive the world as something to be recorded and photographed and rather than just digested with our eyeballs. There I go with the digesting again. Um, maybe I'm hungry. It is coming up to lunchtime in Melbourne. <laughs> sure. That's fine. <laughs> um, to the zoo a couple of weeks ago, and it was the first time in ages that I've been to the zoo. Six-year-olds now for the first time that I've witnessed were filming animals with their phones and then showing each other photos more than they were just looking at the animals. And I don't like to automatically assume that anything is bad. Worlds change and reshape. But I think I'm pretty much coming to the conclusion that the level of media filtering and device filtering we're doing on the world makes me profoundly uncomfortable. So a lot of questions that I'm asking people lately are questions in relation to how people feel about that because it's too easy just to assume that what was was better. We're inherently quite nostalgic human beings, I think, and I don't want to presume that going around looking at everything with our own plain eyeballs is better than videoing it through a telephone, um, and I want to check in how other human beings feel about that, um, no matter what conclusions I might be coming to. Um, so that's a lot of that's a question that I've been asking a lot of people lately is different facets of how people feel about that. Well, I have a lot of time with six-year-olds, including <laughs> my own, Grant, who's not quite seven, and all of the kindergartners and first graders that he's hanging out with uh, at the school. I'll tell you what, if you want to get a six-year-old's attention, if they have a phone or not, just don't wear shoes. Oh, yeah. That's nice. Like me. I yeah. cannot tell you, over the last month, month and a half, it's been really warm, and I've been walking all over the neighborhood without shoes. And... 
you mentioned how people are using their brains. I know how people are using their brains, and most of it is wondering why I'm not wearing shoes, <laughs> including the six-year-olds. So whenever you just want to all stop, what the heck is going on here? Just don't wear shoes. That's my little pro tip. I love a hot tip. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, how good is it not wearing shoes? God, I love not wearing shoes. It is one of the more, uh, this is kind of, when I think about frugal hedonism too, I think about just walking around barefoot. Yeah, it really that costs it, me nothing. If it, anything, it saves me money because I don't need to own as many pairs of shoes or any pairs of shoes. And I love coming home and having my feet be dirty. Like I yeah. use them. I use my feet the way that I've evolved to use my feet. And that's not to say I don't wear shoes. I live in a place where it gets really cold and I'm not crazy. If it's zero degrees Fahrenheit or negative 20 Celsius, I am wearing shoes. Trust me, I'm doing that. But I try to go shoeless, and this is a pretty recent thing, as often as possible. And people just seem dumbstruck. Why? Where did you get the idea in the first place that it was okay? And why would you want to do something like that? And I say it just makes me feel wonderful. It makes me feel connected to the earth, literally connected. It makes me feel more present with the people that I'm with because there's a there's an increased level of comfort of not wearing shoes. It's just a wonderful little thing. No, I, I mean, I'm not fully sold on the sort of uh, full barefoot running movement and so on, although I'm not, not sold on it. But walking around barefoot, it definitely increases. Yeah, I mean, you, feel, you just feel better physically for starters, but it increases your sense of, sensory intake so profoundly i actually um i went in the middle of this year i went camping for two weeks straight in a in a warm very mostly sandy area and near near the ocean and i didn't wear shoes for the entire time and i decided to measure my feet across the the bridge right before I left and right after I came back um, because I'd, I'd done a similar thing before and I had been looking at my feet when I'd come back and thought, they seem to have gotten really, really wide. Like, some yeah. yeah. I measured them and they had, I kid you not, they had grown what 1.3 centimeters wider. Sorry, we have a very heavy downpour here right now. I hope it's not too noisy. Um, no. Nope. And nope. they were so muscular and flexible because I'd been walking over beach stones and rocks and boulders that I could pick. I, I'm, I'm absurdly flexible. I've got no excuse for it. I haven't done that much yoga. But I could pick up a spoon between my toes and use it to feed myself, which I did just to try and make my housemates crack up. <laughs> but my was so agile that they could actually manipulate cutlery. <laughs> it also that. seems to be a fantastic thing for ironing out any uh, like spinal cricks or anything you've got is spending it more time barefoot. It really just puts paid to any of that stuff. Yeah, well, if people are thinking you two are wild and crazy, but kind of awesome, maybe I want to do that too. I'm actually going to link in the show notes to uh, an episode. My favorite podcast is called Rewild Yourself. Uh, the host, Daniel Vitalis, did an episode with a podiatrist in Portland, Oregon, about not necessarily shedding your shoes, but the damage 
that shoes do and how many of our physiological and even mental problems are related to the fact that we are wearing shoes or the types of shoes that we wear. This is a very hot topic for me too. Uh, I've had lots of conversations around footwear or shoe coffins as uh, Daniel likes to call them. Anyway, that's a side note, but also I want to refer people to some cool resources and also want to keep the focus as well. You've been very generous with your time. I'm really grateful for that, Annie. But I always like to ask this one question. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? Well, almost tying into that that little anecdote just then, in fact, I really think that one of the best things that, and once again, there is a chapter in the book on this, that people can do to help stem the desire to buy more stuff because even lots of listeners of this show will be really practiced at thinking about consuming less and why they want to do that. But in day-to-day life where you're faced with a culture that is constantly encouraging you to consume more stuff, then you have to have as many tools on your side to help fortify you as you can. And I think a, a big trap that lots of us consuming is when we're seeking novelty and that being curious is one of the best ways to satisfy that's that desire for novelty instead of buying things so instead of saying I want to get a new outfit or I want to go try that new cafe that I read a review of you acknowledge that what you actually want is not those things but that you're seeking novelty and that curiosity and finding out new information is so often a fantastic way to supply that desire for novelty so you you do something ridiculous like measure your foot before and after you go for a hike or you listen to a podcast about something that you have never thought about before like barefoot walking or like I'm sure lots of the other stuff that you can link to or you go take a free tour of a uh, building in your city or you find out about an insect in your back garden and out of all the skills that can help fortify you against those those urges that we all feel to to satisfy ourselves by consuming that's one of the ones that we haven't really touched on that I'd like to leave people with which is appropriate for podcasting universe because there's so much tasty information out there to satisfy that sense of novelty Mm, it's delicious. Well, yep. if people want to channel their curiosity into exploring more of your world, where would you like them to go? Frugalhedonism.com. You can order the ebook version of The Art of Frugal Hedonism on that. Unfortunately, we cannot post to U.S. listeners there, so you'd have to get it from a bookstore in the U.S., and it's stocked at bookstores or online. And that site will also link to the weed foragers handbook which i know there's an overlap of some of the weeds in the u.s not all of them but there's actually a a decent overlap uh but for most people listening i think the art of frugal hedonism is going to be the the much more available and relevant book well thank you again annie for this delicious delightful conversation i'm also hungry too but it's Mm -hmm. late at night You, of course, can go get some lunch. I will find out another way to figure out uh, what to do with my foodie impulses at the moment. All right. How'd you like that one? 
the words that keep popping back into my head are when Annie said, you can postpone having adventures until you have a lot of money, or you can just get better at having cheap adventures. I'm wondering, how does that hit you? Loud and clear or quiet and a little bit murky? If you like, you can find links to all the stuff we spoke about. Topic timestamps, takeaways, and more niftiness in the show notes at joelzaslowski.com slash SASM120. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, the show, and our community at joelzaslowski.com slash support. That's it. How's that? for a streamlined lead-out to match my experimentally streamlined episode lead-in. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski. Now go simplify something. Hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet on.